Right, you are listening to the Maker's Quest podcast. I am Brian Benham. And I am Greg Porter. And today's topic is staying curious to stay creative. And when we think about staying curious, uh, I always put it in the perspective of, I always want to be learning new things. And I consider myself, as, as probably a lot of people listening to this podcast, consider myself a lifelong learner. I've never stopped wanting to know more about a lot of things. I think a lot of us probably watch shows like How's It Made or <laughs> things of that nature because we want to know how in the hell do they make a golf ball or, or whatever it is. But interestingly enough, I think when we dive into some of those things that we're learning about, we find inspiration in the way that somebody else approaches a problem. And it changes the way fundamentally that we react to things or we think about things. And I'm, I'm sure, Brian, that you have several examples in your work of times that curiosity led to creativity. Yeah, I, uh, I think I've used this uh, example on several past podcasts, but when you're into a thing, uh, that's kind of the thing that you're really curious about and want to keep learning more and more things about. And so one of my inspirations of someone that uh, I try to follow a lot is David Marks and his metal patina work and some of the colors that he gets. And I, he teaches a course and I've yet been able to afford uh, time off to go take his patina course. So I've been mainly self-exploring uh, the world of metal patinas. And through that exploration, I think, okay, well, how does he make that color? And then that makes me go research. And during that research, uh, I generally find new colors that I didn't know could be made, like uh, just by mixing a couple of chemicals together and fuming it in a different way, all of a sudden creates a whole new uh, colorway. So I think that that is like one of those things that... Uh, uh, are a good example of how I use curiosity to continue to create new things and uh, bolster my creativity. Well, I think you're you're definitely onto something. I, I think all of us could play Mr. Wizard in, in the chemistry world for the rest of our lives and never never find the end of what different chemicals can do to different materials, whether that's eroding the surface, whether it's changing the color. Or, you know, you put this on first and then you put that on and it pickles it in a different way. Or, exactly. you know, the one I see, I think I've seen you do it, Brian, is when people put different types of salt into the mix. So you have a base material, you have a chemical that you put on it, and then all of a sudden you've got some type of chloride on top of that. And it completely changes the direction in which that experiment was going yeah i think different uh different types of salt like sea salt versus uh table salt uh the granule size of how it dissolves and sits on the metal does create different patterns and things and i think uh, i should also clarify just for a safety note that uh, before you mix things together you should do a little research just to make sure um bad things aren't going to happen so i do research stuff. And uh, I am at a little bit of an advantage. Uh, my daughter is going to school as a chemical engineer. So she has access to some kind of computer that you can put in what you're going to mix and then the solutions that you're going to mix it, the quantities that you're going to mix it. And it'll tell you what's what kind of reaction to expect. Uh, it doesn't go into art of what color it will uh, create, but it will tell you if you're going to blow yourself up or not. So if I text her what I'm thinking and she texted me back a skull and crossbones emoji or a boom emoji, I know to proceed with caution. <laughs> that's, a, that's a handy person to have on speed dial. That's for certain. I know, uh, my gosh, we, we won't get too deep into to chemistry here, but I know a lot of people when they're trying to clean stuff, they wind up mixing i think it's ammonia and chlorine bleach and it produces basically like mustard gas very uh very very dangerous stuff and you know if you do that accidentally in your garage and you have plenty of breathing air and all that you know kind of stuff you're you're probably going to be okay but when it comes to some of these other concentrated chemicals for sure some of the acids that you can get at your local hardware store those can be really really tough on your lungs and they can hide either either low in the atmosphere or high in the atmosphere and they can hang out for a long time and still be dangerous so yes you're absolutely right if you're going to experiment 
you know, maybe go outside. <laughs> um, but it's always good to uh, good to uh, to do all your research. But along those lines, um, I am so in in the world of architecture, we wind up doing quite a few things with the same materials over and over and over again. And we use a lot of concrete. We use a lot of steel. We use a lot of glass. Um, and then we use finishing materials. But on the concrete side of things, I have been able to, through through the work that I do, I've been able to experiment a lot with different concrete finishes to get different concrete stainings, whether those are acid stains, whether they're um, uh, chemicals that go into the mix that change the color of the concrete. But it is absolutely fascinating to see a bottle of, uh, you know, what what looks to be bright yellow acid get poured onto a, a slab of concrete and turn bright purple or something along those lines where it just completely bends your mind. Like, how did this actually work? And, and you find out uh, through conversations with manufacturers and everything else that that acid is reacting with some chemical that's in the concrete and controlling the amount of that chemical in the concrete, whether it is the salts or calcium, I guess, chlorides, calciums, um, there's one other one that we can control um, with the the cement. So the Portland cement, the type of Portland that you put in will actually change the color. And then the aggregates will react in different ways too. But anyway, I'm, I'm kind of going down a, a weird tunnel there. But when you start, uh, we're always allowed, we're, we're usually allowed one big test panel on a project if we're doing some kind of staining or, or post finishing on concrete. And it's usually fun to leave, to, to make it in quarters and leave one of those quarters for something completely different that nobody thought of. <laughs> and, and it always comes out with, with mixed results. Sometimes it's terrible and you would never, never use that in a, in a professional setting. And other times it may inform what you do on your next project. Like, oh, hey, if you mix these two things together, it actually kind of dulls the effect and makes it a little more muted or something along those lines. Yeah. And then uh, you don't necessarily have to um, go by just experimenting, but you can just by watching what other people do. Like one of the things that I uh, uh, gleamed onto on, on my patina process to add copper to steel uh, as a, as a decorative element is I was watching another guy on his YouTube channel, he used a fertilizer or like maybe it was a moss killer that he sprayed on there and it immediately brightened up in copper, but then it immediately turned black. And I was like, well, I need to figure out how I can use that and make it stay. And what is the chemical in the fertilizer or in the, whatever it was, I think it was either fertilizer or a moss killer. Uh, what that chemical was. So then I started pulling MSDS sheets to find out what the chemical list is. And I started going through each one of those chemicals to see what, what would happen and what would react. And so just by staying curious of like, huh, asking questions like, huh, what was, what, what is in that that's causing that to happen? And then what's causing it to go from bright copper to black all of a sudden? Uh, and it, and can I stop that? So just constantly asking questions is another uh, really great way to, stay curious to continue your creative journey. Well, and I'm going to sound like the old man now, but um, this, this, I think, I think it's always good to remind ourselves we have the internet now, which is this unending amount of research that other people have done failures and successes both. And you can learn as much from the failures as you can from the successes. And that's probably a, a great example, Brian, like, I've got this thing. It looks just like I want, and then it fails and it turns black. Well, okay, let's learn from that. What What's the next step? But when, when you're looking for, again, something to inspire your work, something to inspire creativity, that curiosity about how other people are doing things, I think um, I'll use an example from or a, an analogy from, uh, it's a friend of a friend. I, I've met Dwayne, Dwayne Euler. We may maybe could leave a, a link to his website, the Euler Woo Collaborative. Uh, he's an architect out in Los Angeles, but he does phenomenal metal work. He's also a teacher at SciArc, which is uh, an architectural school in, in LA. And he talks about sometimes he'll see a student struggle. And in, in design school, you don't ever want to solve a problem for someone because that's the whole point of the school, right? Is to learn how to solve the problems. 
But he said every once in a while, he can pick them up and move them five steps down the line. And it's going to avoid something that is a huge time suck that will keep them from learning all the stuff on the other end. And I think that's where as creators, as makers, when we look at how other people are doing things, it can help us pick up and skip those seven steps of, of having to fail, 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 fail. And maybe, maybe it takes out five of the seven failures and you're left with only two that you have to solve, but, but you, you build on what they've learned. And I think that's, you know, that's humankind, right? The, the stuff that we're doing now, building steel bridges, you go back to the aqueducts and, and all of that kind of stuff. Like we've built on the things that we learned back in, in the, the Roman era and, and we keep advancing one more or two more steps beyond every project. And I think, you know, when, when I, when I think of, of curiosity leading to creativity, that's, you know, what was the last person, what was their last step? And then how can I create something different out of that and arrive at a, a solution to, to a problem or a, a solution to maybe it's not even a problem, a, a new thing. And, and having used what they've done in the past to inform that. Yeah, I think a a good example I want to point out is uh, when we've we've talked in the past about how I wanted to learn how to use watercolor in my presentations to present my designs to clients, and I wanted to use watercolor in Photoshop, but I didn't know how to create watercolor in Photoshop, and my Photoshop skills were, uh, you know, they're not. I'm, I I know how to I know enough of Photoshop to be dangerous with it. Let's uh, let's use that common phrase. So I Google I, or search on YouTube how to create watercolors in uh, Photoshop, and of course there's a whole bunch of videos by a whole bunch of different creators that are all basically the same thing to show you how to use like the cloud texture to create watercolors. It's the same tutorial, different person, and it. It resulted in okay colors, but it wasn't phenomenal colors. And then I've stumbled upon, like I scrolled past all the popular YouTubers because of course YouTube shows the popular guys first. Um, and they've built this, they're great following this. That's great for them. Um, but unfortunately they've, they're all doing the same things. But I scrolled all the way down and I found this guy, uh, his name is Jeremy. I can't remember the name of his channel. It's like light ponderings or light and color or something like that. But he used to be a colorist for Pixar mm. and he did not show how to do a watercolor, but he explained the theory of how he uses Photoshop to create watercolor. And that like moved my Photoshop skills from being dangerous to like 10 X more than where I was at just, just by two of his videos, like, that little bit of knowledge just unlocked a whole new world of Photoshop for me on how to use it. Well, and I think that's a that's a wonderful example. I'm going to pull another example that many people have probably heard of, but Steve Jobs, one of the reasons Apple computers had various fonts was because he audited a calligraphy class when he was, was he at Stanford? I can't remember what university he was at. He wound up dropping out of it and not graduating and becoming one of the wealthiest <laughs> people in the world. Right. Um, but but the way that the way that he described it is he Apple computers would have never had these rich font uh options if he had never audited that class. And you know, what does a calligraphy class have to do with an electronics nerd who's trying to build computers, right? Um I think when when I start looking at connections like that, and we've just we've discussed before on this podcast some of the the chocolate and peanut butter type of things where where two ideas collide and become something far better than the two ideas were on their own. And and I think that's a wonderful example. You know, calligraphy on its own is a great thing. Computers on their own are pretty cool. But when you put the two together, all of a sudden you open all these doors, either either to different types of creativity in the graphic design world or in the print industry or or whatever it was. I think, you know, a lot of the early font users on computers were sign makers. And it's amazing if you want some creative inspiration, just look up sign making. Just just start down that rabbit hole on the internet and you will see some of the most interesting graphic layout, uh, creative 
things that you've ever seen. And and I always look at guys um, that I respect. I mean, Jimmy Duresta is one of them. Look at Jimmy Duresta's sign-making abilities. Just search his channel for signs. He does some magnificent work in signs. Everybody wants, you know, talks about his welding and, and all the other, you know, and he does some amazing other things. Don't get me wrong. Don't, don't take that the wrong way. But when I go back and look at his ability, uh, his proportions, his layout, um, the scale of things that he that he does, I think a lot of that probably goes back to some early sign making that he did when he was younger. I don't I don't know Jimmy's complete history where he started and all those kind of things, but but I think that informs a lot. And again, when we look at areas to grab inspiration from to become uh, to generate creativity, I think looking at things like the old masters in sign making will change the way that you address furniture will change the way uh that you address car design will will change the way that you address a number of things that you might be designing yeah there was a uh a youtube video i was watching a while ago i can't remember uh what was her? i think her name is dammy lee maybe um, if I, if I can find it, I'll put a link into it in the show notes. It was a great little video about how she went to Venice and, uh, she was just deliberately creative. And as she walked through Venice, if, if, a if a alleyway looked interesting, she'd just go down that alleyway. Sometimes it would be like a, this dead end. Sometimes it would open up into this really beautiful, um, place where she could take a picture of some beautiful architecture look overlooking, uh, I don't know. Do they call it the bay, a bay there? That, that I, I know Venice exactly what in. you're talking about, but yeah. Uh -huh. Yeah. And so she, she explored Venice like that and she just kept cataloging these views as she went through. So it's kind of like that, uh, be a deliberate observer of your environment as you walk around and observe things, just take note of that and catalog it for later use. And so back to Jimmy Duresta, uh, example, one of the signs that I saw him make is he took metal and sheet metal and, bit, and bent it, uh, the shape of the letters, and then put a light inside each letter. So it was like this box letter. So for him to come up with that idea, it was because he was curious about electricity. So he knew how to solder and wire the light bulb. He was curious about metal. So he knew how to bend the light bulb or bend the metal to shape, make the shapes. He was curious about welding and brazing to braze the edges together. Uh, he was curious about uh, light and color of light to knew to know what type of bulbs would look good inside that light. So all those things throughout his entire life that he collected as he went helped him create this really cool sign. Yeah, and you bring up something interesting, Brian, and it's something that I know I have fallen victim to over the years. And it's you get into a lot of different things, right? I, I wouldn't call myself a woodworker, a metal worker, a machinist, any of those things, a painter, <laughs> uh, an instrument builder. I, I'm, I'm not in one box. I'm in a lot of different boxes. And I think having all of those sandboxes close to one another so that you can hop from one to the next to the next and combine them back is how you get some some really interesting things to happen. And Jimmy is is one of those guys. I think you know I, I've seen him do some printmaking, leather work, welding, woodworking. I don't want to make this whole episode about Jimmy Duresta, but I think he's a he's a wonderful example because when you look at YouTube, when you look at a lot of podcasts, there are people who I don't want to say they pigeonhole, but but they definitely say I'm a woodworker or you know I work on cars or I'm a machinist, and sometimes they don't go outside of those bounds, but. There are other guys, I, I follow a few guys that do plastic injection molding. There's something completely different. But in order to do pl plastic injection molding, you have to be a machinist, a mold maker. You have to understand plastics and resins and how they shrink and grow. Some of the guys who, who do injection molding are also roboticists. So they have robots that pick parts out of molds, trim them, pack them. Uh, put them in another machine for a second process. Uh, sometimes they overmold things. So the robots have to put in the thing that's being overmolded. And that is that uh, art, if you want to call it that, is so multifaceted in terms of what you have to know and what you have to be an expert at. 
that it is it is fascinating. And you know, the one thing that I don't see them do a lot of is woodwork or welding, but um, but they do a lot of different stuff. And if you're going to plastic injection mold parts that are going to become part of another assembly, I think that's where it starts to to grow. Now, a lot of the makers out there are skipping the plastic injection molding process and using 3D printers, which I think is awesome too. Uh, totally different subject matter, but it's all to build different assemblies or different pieces and parts that are going to work in a way that maybe a metal part wouldn't work or a wood part wouldn't work. So it's a it's a wonderful third or fourth option in a lot of cases. So yeah, so I guess on another side tangent on on staying creative with your uh, career, I back in the day, I worked for a bridge construction company. And one of the things that we were tasked to do one day was to test an engineer's theory um, about how to pour those barriers between the highway. So if a car hits it, you know, if you look, drive, drive down the freeway, those barriers are kind of triangle shaped and they have a certain shape to push the car back down. And those are just craned in on his particular design. They were going to be a monolithic piece coming off the bridge. But uh, since they're triangle shaped and he wanted to pour it in place, the weight of the concrete would push the form up off of it. So he came up with this idea to uh, uh, build this particular style of form that would not allow for the concrete to, to push it up off, off the ground. And this truck driver, concrete truck driver, uh, pulls up with a load full of truck, a load full of concrete. We pour it in the form and we're doing our thing. And at the end of the day, this he needs just like this old grouchy looking dude, like he's scary looking. And I'm like maybe 17, 18 years old. So I'm definitely a little intimidated by them because I'm just some dumb kid just hired to uh, shovel concrete into the form, right? And uh, he points at me, he's like, hey, you kid, come here. And I was like, okay. So I go over there and he's like, hey, you look like you work hard. I want you to come over and help me build my deck this weekend. If you're interested, pay a couple hundred bucks. And so I didn't know what to expect. Like, is he going to like bury me in his backyard or am I going to make a couple hundred bucks? But I go over to his house and uh, I, as soon as I pull up, pull down the street, I know exactly which house his is because uh, the front of his house had all kinds of decorative concrete. Uh, the sidewalk, he had cut out the, the sidewalk that the city poured and poured his own stamped concrete in the sidewalk. All the paths throughout his garden and his garden had all these different raised beds with all these different types of stamped concrete. Like he had practiced uh, stamping different techniques and different stains and different colorations throughout his entire yard. And what he had told me uh, is that Every time he had leftover concrete, a lot of guys, they just dump it out on the ground somewhere wherever the contractor says, hey, go dump it. But he would bring it home and he would use it to practice because he wanted to start his own decorative concrete business someday. And so his his whole yard was this this whole thing of him just being curious and playing with concrete. I That is a that is a wonderful example of what you can do. I, I talk a lot, um, gosh, especially to the young people I work with. I know I say that all the time, but. I talk a lot about that 1%, you know, if you can put in 1% per day to make yourself better at something, I don't care what it is. If it's verbal skills, if it's <laughs> reading books, if it's going out in the shop and doing something different that you've never done before, or if you're learning to weld, you know, weld, weld, you know, 30 minutes every day, and you'll be amazed in a couple months how good you are at that skill, fill in the blank. And that that's a perfect example of, hey, every day I'm I'm driving these concrete trucks back with a quarter of a yard. I could use that to make myself better or to to push some ideas that I've had. And you know, at what cost, right? That that costs that guy fuel probably to get from point yeah. A to point B. And that's it. And back to our our topic, you know, curiosity. There's a, there's an unending, and I know other makers out there are are this way. There's an unending pile of things that I've taken apart in my life with no intent to put back together. Not a hey, I'm going to fix this or I'm going to make this better. It's just uh, this doesn't work anymore. But I'm going to take it apart to understand how they did what they did. You know, the 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 famous one that a lot of people do is toasters. Toasters are fascinating the mechanism that pops, you know, that times the toast and pops it up. There's several variations of what that is, but 
to see it in action is just fascinating. Uh, you know, if you can get your hands on an old 50s or 60s toasters, they're they're much more interesting than the ones they're making today. But microwave ovens are another favorite of mine. You know, it's just a huge transformer with <laughs> some some contactors inside of it, but they're fascinating to take apart to see the latching mechanisms that that interlock to make sure that you don't microwave your hand uh, <laughs> by sticking it in there and not closing the door, things of that nature. But but um, the the thing that I would say is is a great thing to do uh, as makers. We're surrounded by things that are manufactured and really digging down and paying attention. I look at at things. You look at the material something's made out of. You look at the color uh, that it winds up being, but then look hard at the textures that are added to different parts for different reasons. Whether that's knurling, sandblasting. Uh, sanding, tumbling, if it's a crackle finish for one reason or another. I mean, sometimes they're aesthetic, but a lot of times there's a tactile feedback that needs to happen. And back to injection molding, look at some of your tools. Uh, uh, the, the thing that I would say is cordless screwdrivers or cordless drills are fascinating. Just really study how how they mold that tool, how they overmold that tool, the clicks and the the tactical tactile feedback that you get when you hit the buttons or click switches or whatever those things are, uh, those that type of curiosity, really studying a thing, an object that somebody has put a ton of time into making will inform your future projects to a level that uh, most people don't ever get to. Kyle Toth is a, a great example of somebody who adds interesting texture to his work. And he's a woodworker, right? He's a uh, not necessarily a wood turner. He does a lot of turnings, but he makes furniture and he does other things. But he will go in and add texture to certain pieces of his work. And it's extraordinarily tedious but it separates his work from everybody else's. Is he the uh, the guy that does the leopard print carvings? He is. That's, that's the texture, yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. some crazy cool stuff. It is. And, you know, uh, I would look at some of his turnings as well. The size of his turnings is insane. Like that guy, uh, I'm sure there are other people out there turning pieces just as big, but but you know he he's doing these segmented turnings that that are just enormous. I don't know how many glue ups he goes through. It's got to be in some cases hundreds of of glue ups to get the pieces formed to make the final shape. But just insane cool work. Yeah. So kind of stepping back a little bit to your engineering or taking things apart, I think that's how a lot of makers kind of got started and interested in making is taking things apart. I certainly took my share of things apart, uh, not always uh, with the the best permission from my, my father. I remember one time I took the chainsaw apart because I wanted to know how it worked. And then he's talking about one night at dinner with my mom that he's going to clean up the yard this weekend. Um, so I knew he's going to be wanting his chainsaw to clean cut up all those branches. So I frantically putting that chainsaw back together and hoping that it will start. But uh, yeah, so anyways, so yeah. And then I think that's just how you learn how things work. And then you're able to to diagnose if something uh, goes awry. So uh, if we kind of take that shift to using creativity or being curious to problem solving, uh, recently with all this rain here in Colorado, we had uh, a huge uh, thunderstorm that rolled through. And it flooded the side of my house where the septic tank is at. And we had sewage water backing up into the basement. Um, so yeah, all night I was with my shop back, sucking it up, pouring it out the window, sucking it up, pouring it out the window all night long until um, we were able to get a pump truck out to uh, to pump the tank, pump the tank out. But me being curious when I first moved into this house, I wanted to know how a septic system works. So I kind of went and investigated it and I took the lids off of all the different things and there's some different control things. And I realized uh, just from my curiosity that there were these valves that came from the wheat field uh, that was allowing water to flow back into the tank. So once I shut those valves off, it slowed the uh, the amount of water coming into my basement to a manageable level. And had I not been curious when we moved in to know that those valves are there, um, I, my my basement would be a huge mess right now. Well, 
I think that's a great lesson too, is that, you know, most of the things out there, a lot of people are afraid to lift lids and look in things and turn knobs because they think they're going to upset the balance of, <laughs> of the earth or something. I don't know what it is, but most of the, most of the systems that we have, whether it's our electrical system, our heating system, our plumbing system in our houses are fairly simple systems. There's not a lot complicated in there. Some of the controls are sometimes complicated, but the pieces of equipment are just valves and knobs and, and buttons and contactors and things of that nature. And, you know, being curious about them again, I think can lead to a number of things that change the way that you work or change the way that you solve problems and lead to things. Um, you know, I, I think back to, I mean, the simple valve in our toilets, right? You flush the toilet, the, the float goes down and at a certain point it turns on the water. And then when it floats up to the top at a certain point, it trips and stops the water, right? So there's, there's a range and it works just like a compressor or anything else where there's a, an in and an out range. And uh, thinking back to, to Kansas City and, and the house we had there, we were going to start collecting rainwater and water our grass with rainwater because they, they get a fair amount of precipitation in that area. And looking at, well, how do you do that without overflowing tanks and this, that, and the other thing? And I had a full design for a diverter valve that would work just like a toilet. So when you have your tank and, and it gets to a certain point, when it gets low enough, that diverter valve says, okay, any rainwater that's coming off of the roof is going to go into the tank. Then when it fills up to a certain level now, instead of overflowing that tank and inundating your foundation or whatever, it's going to divert and go into the downspout that was meant to kick water away from your house. And I don't know, there's... There's so many examples of little systems like that that we have every day. You know, we we walk past them every day in our house and they can be extraordinarily useful if you're designing something different or something new, even though it may not, you may not think that it applies. Yeah. And even, uh, even the more complex system, I, I, over the years, I've kind of come to this uh, realization that. I no longer need to call a professional to come fix something or install something or do something for me, especially with the, uh, the internet, because that information for that professional to learn to become a professional is out there somewhere. I just have to yeah. find it and read it and then go be curious enough to take the thing apart to see how it works, to understand it. And then I can install it myself. And a perfect example of that is uh, my well. Uh, we live out in a rural area. I'm on a private well. I have a well pump. And uh, there's two basic styles of well pumps. There's a well pump that pumps it up to a tank that's usually in your rafters or someplace high. And uh, it's got a bladder in it to keep a little pressure on it. So when you turn your water on, gravity in that little bladder helps push water into your sink or your toilet or whatever you're filling. Or what I have is a stage pump. So it has a, uh, a detector on it. So when you turn the shower on, it knows, okay, this, it needs this much volume of water from the sensor. So it ramps up the pump. Then if somebody flushes the toilet, it knows like, oh, hey, someone flushed the toilet. We need a lot more water and it speeds up the pump. Well, the control box that senses all that stuff went bad. And uh, I called someone to come out and repair it. And this person was supposed to be a professional and they installed a new box. And they left and we turned on the water. Okay, yay, I got water. Well, when you turn on the shower and then someone flushes the toilet, all hell broke loose and it would uh, drop the volume of water and then it would speed up to this crazy high pressure. Like this thing could not control the box. <laughs> and so I called the guy and he's like, oh, well, it's going to be another X amount of dollars for me to come out and diagnose it. And I was like, well, I'm not paying that because I think one, you're ripping me off because you don't know what you're doing. And, and two, I'm going to figure this out myself. And what, uh, what it needed was to be programmed to talk to the pump. And you had to have a special tool to program it to talk to the pump. And he didn't have that special tool. And so he just was like, oh, yeah, it worked and got out of there and, you know, basically tried to screw me. So I found someone in my area that had that special tool and I told them what happened. I'm like, look, I think I got ripped off by this guy. I don't want to, I don't want to spend a bunch of money. Can I just borrow your tool? And the guy gave me his tool 
and uh, this little programmer tool, and I was able to program the pump myself. And then after I got water running and a little more research, I realized I can just order that thing on Amazon. Like I don't, so like you don't need, you just need to, unfortunately, one, you don't have water and your wife's looking at you like, hey, I want to take a shower before I go to work. You don't necessarily always have time to research all those things. Um, but now that I've experienced that, if it happens again, I know, I know I don't, I don't, I could just order next day off of Amazon the parts that I need and I'm back up and running. I, you know, that's a great lesson. I think, again, you know, being curious about things is a, a wonderful way to, to lead to number one, educating ourselves, right? Like how does this work? And, and generally like we shared earlier, a lot of these things aren't that complicated. They just take a little time, but the, the thing that I would share is in a lot of situations, we have more time than we have money. And we are, since since my job and your job isn't to go out and repair things or do certain things for people, you can, and you know, some people call it tinkering. You can tinker at something for a while. But the way the way I like to say it is you can tweak things. You can spend the time to make something perfect and to really dial it in. And the thing that I would, the example that I would use is, you know, I've, I've painted cars before and, and several things that are, that require an insane amount of time. And if you're going to pay someone to repaint a car for you, really repaint a car, like restoration level, paint a car, you're probably upwards of 20,000, maybe going into the $30,000 range for someone to do that wet sand it, buff it, and do all, all the things to make that finish as good as it can be. As a home gamer, so to speak, you can buy the tools to paint a car for a couple hundred bucks. Like a, a really high-end spray gun might cost you $800 compared to $30,000 for somebody to paint your car. <laughs> it's, it, it becomes a pretty pretty affordable tool to buy if you're staring down the barrel. Now the paint itself is probably going to cost a fair amount of money too. Don't get me wrong. And buffers and that sort of thing. But you can spend an insane amount of, you, you can pay someone to do paint correction. Every paint job needs paint correction. I don't care who does it. There's always going to be a little sag here, dust nibs or something along those lines that can use correction and then polishing out a paint job. It doesn't matter if it needs correction or not. It needs to be polished out if it's going to be as good as it can be. But it's all time. The skills really aren't that dramatic. You, you, you need to be able to do this in a flat manner <laughs> over the entire surface of a vehicle. And you can take a paint job from, you know, looking like it came out of a garage to looking like it's ready, you know, to win a car show. And all of it is, is time. And, a, you know, a few little sandpaper and some polish and some other things here and there, but you can get darn near the same result that the $30,000 guy might have. And the reality is he doesn't have time to mess with it. You know, when it's, when it's painted, he's got to get it out of his shop because he's got five more sitting behind it. And so there might be some minor imperfections that he's not going to get to anyway. And I think that's a, that's a great lesson with being curious is once you figure out sort of the, the micro set of skills that it's going to take to do something, doing it on a larger scale is just increasing the, the area in which you're working. So it, it's kind of a, an interesting thing. And, and the plumbing example is exactly that. It's, it's not probably that hard. There's some textbook somewhere or there's some class that the guy went to or those types of people go to, to learn that stuff. And again, if you're dealing with pressures in your house, those guys charge by the hour, they're trying to get out of there before their hours up or whatever else. And if there's, you know, some really dialed in types of things, if you have that programmer, you're going to get it exactly how you want it. And it's going to be perfect where, you know, trying to call somebody back and forth three or four times to get it squared away is going to be cost prohibitive. Yeah. Yeah. So one thing I always like tell myself when I screw something up and it's going to cost me some money is I didn't go to college to learn how to be an artist or be a woodworker. I didn't go to a trade school to learn how to be a woodworker. I just went out there and started doing it because I liked doing it and I was curious about it. So when I screw up, that's like my college tuition, right? Like when I went yeah. from being a hobbyist to a professional woodworker and I went from using like hobby type of finishes to a spray booth. My first um, gallon of, of spray finish, uh, I basically used that gallon, that cost of that gallon was just all just screwing up, trying to figure out how to set the gun up, 
how to how to clean it, how to how much to thin it, right? And just practicing it. So that that $70 gallon was my tuition to learn how to spray finish. Well, uh, another great lesson there is if you're if you're learning to spray finish or learning to do anything, I don't care what it is, sweating pipes, uh hooking up electrical outlets, whatever it is, there's always a very inexpensive practice material to try your hand on. And we've probably mentioned this before on the podcast, but don't don't learn finishing on a piece of furniture that you've spent 400 hours sanding and getting perfect. Don't use that as your practice piece. Set it aside. Go buy go buy yourself, you know, a, a pile of pine one by sixes and cut them into 12 inch long pieces and spray your finish. And when you can get a piece of pine looking like it belongs in a museum, then you're ready for the $10,000, uh, you know, walnut and, uh, fill in the blank exotic wood table that you've got sitting off to the side that needs to be finished to kind of, uh, piggyback on your, uh, don't use your $400 or 400 hour piece to practice finishing on, but don't buy necessarily the cheap materials because those cheap True. materials, like if you buy a cheap gallon of finish, that might not spray as smoothly as the higher end stuff. There's a reason why the higher end stuff sprays better. And also like the gun, if you buy a cheap gun, it's not going to perform as well. You're not going to get as good of a finish as you can. Um, so you got to find that balance of like, okay, I'm going to use these cheap practice pieces, but I'm still going to use the high performance finish to practice with. So that way I know and get a feel with it. And then uh, I think another good thing to iterate on or, or to think about is, is never think that you've mastered that. Like right now I am, uh, I have a order for uh, 16 tables for a restaurant. And so I'm spending a lot of time in the spray booth spraying bottoms and tops. Uh, I know some people don't always spray the bottom of their tables. I do. Cause you know, when you got to peel that gum off, you'll thank me for spraying the bottom too. But uh, so I have, bottoms and tops of 16 tables of spray and I'm about halfway through and my technique from the first table I sprayed to the table I sprayed now is even more refined and I thought like the first table I was like yeah I know what I'm doing like I've sprayed hundreds of tops before but now that I'm spraying them in succession every day like all day long spraying um there's a whole nother level of dialing in stuff that I didn't even realize was there you know i'll i'll share um i'm not gonna i'm not gonna kick his name out there because i haven't asked him about it but one of my good buddies who he has a youtube channel he paints cars and does some custom work and uh anyway uh, i think the world of him one of his jobs was to paint car mirrors in a factory and they they sprayed out of a pressure pot i can't remember how many gallons of paint if it was a single gallon or like a three or four gallon pressure pot. And so, I mean, literally they would just spray for hours on end <laughs> these mirrors and they would come through, you know, I don't know if it was Buick, Buick mirrors or something along those lines, you know, it was, it was American car mirrors. And he talked about, we talked one time and, and he talked about the difference um, in painting when you're, you know, doing motorcycle parts or fenders or, or whatever in your garage and you think you're pretty good and then you go to a factory and that line is humming along and you got to be <laughs> knocking these mirrors out. And by the way, you get one chance to get it perfect. Like it's got to be one shot, Ours, no runs, on. no drips. And, it, you know, it's just a completely different level. But once you've done that, now you've met, like, you can paint anything. If you can paint these crazy shaped mirrors and not get drunk, uh, drips and runs and get it coated evenly a along the way, like all of a sudden there's a, a different level. But I'll, I'll uh, piggyback on your comment as well. I will say when it comes to the material that you're spraying, if you're going to practice, you have to practice with the good stuff. There's, there's no doubt about it. But I will add this tip. When I was learning to use the spray gun, so I went from a siphon feed, which the paint is in a can on the bottom and it comes out the top. Those are our higher pressure paint guns, right? So lot of overspray in those spray guns. I think they sprayed at like 60 or 80 pounds of pressure. Uh, every, the entire, the entire market moved to a, a high volume, low pressure gun. So it's a gravity feed where the paint's on the top, but the pressures are more like 18 PSI, something like that. I think I, 
I just spray between 18 and 22, somewhere in there. When I changed guns like that, I was completely screwed up. I started spraying expensive material on test panels and couldn't, couldn't get the damn thing dialed in. And I realized what I needed to do was stop using paint for a minute and understand how to control the gun itself, just the gun. And I can't tell you how many quarts of water I sprayed through my expensive spray guns, which I was nervous. I thought, gosh, is this going to corrode it? And it's like, now, you know what? All these parts are chromed. You know, they're meant to be cleaned and solved, you know, stuck in solvent. They're also good for waterborne paints, whatever. But I painted entire cars with water over and over and over again till the atomization was good. The spray patterns were good and everything. If you can get water, by the way, if you're painting a car or painting furniture or anything else, if you can get water to lay down and not drip and run, you'll know exactly how to paint <laughs> with no problems. But then, like I said, once I got to a point where I was very comfortable with fan pattern and material flow, pressures and all those kind of things, then I switched back to using, again, the good material. And I will I will share whether it's it's opaque finish that has color in it or whether it's clear finish, the more you pay for those finishes, everybody thinks that, well, if I use this clear finish versus that clear finish, it's going to cost me twice as much because the price per gallon is twice as much. Generally, the stuff that's more expensive will actually cover more surface area. You will get more yield out of more expensive paint. It seems counterintuitive, but a quart of very expensive paint generally goes much further than a quart of the less expensive paint. So just kind of a lesson that I've learned the hard way by the expensive line. Yeah. That goes I don't know if for, you've learned the same thing. Well, that goes, I don't spray a lot of paint, but like house paint, that's the same thing. Like if you're just brushing your wall or whatever, the, uh, the thinner material, you got to put two coats on the, uh, the more expensive stuff you could do it pretty much in one, one coat, but back to, uh, staying curious, um, uh, when you're adjusting your gun, it's always like, okay, what you got to be curious enough to ask yourself questions like, okay, what happens if I increase the air pressure and then observe what's happening and then react to that observe? What happens if I increase the fluid and observe what's happening? Am I getting orange peel? How do I get rid of orange peel? You know, if I increase my pressure, does that get rid of the orange peel or does it make it worse? And that just that staying curious with your questions. I mean, observing what happens. Yeah, I think that's that's the key to fighting through any new process is <laughs> is is doing the process, then asking you know the being very critical of your work. Did I lay down a well bead that's perfectly even all the way along? If the answer is no, then why? Well, I might have hesitated here, and if you can't if you can't sort it out while you're actually doing that process again. It could be running a hand plane along a board. All you know, I'm trying to get two boards to join with a hand plane, but I'm getting lumps or bumps. Put your video camera up. Videotape yourself or video record. We don't use tape anymore. Video record yourself doing it. And I can tell you back to back to learning to paint cars. I videoed myself painting the same car probably 10 times, watching. Did you miss a spot? How did you move when you went from uh, the top of the fender where you're going the entire length of the car to in between the two wheels where the door is? Are you making, are you keeping the same pace? Like if you, if you count how many feet you're painting per second, are you keeping the same pace or are you putting on more paint or less paint? And are you keeping your overlaps the same? Uh, same with welding. If you can, you know, put your camera up and watch yourself running a weld bead, you'll see your hands either change angle, change speeds. Uh, something will be different when your weld doesn't look good. And if you can identify those, you can correct them. And then all of a sudden you'll be, you know, the, the perfect stack of dimes or however you want to say it, you'll do it over and over again. I still suffer from some of those things because I don't practice enough. And, and when I say I don't practice, I don't do it enough. But once I get into welding for an hour or so, it, it all comes back and, and you start noticing, oh, yeah, you're rushing a little bit on the start of your weld or on the end of your weld or as you're changing positions to, you know, if you're running a weld that's that's a few, several inches long, you've got to change positions throughout the weld. And, you know, should I back off, stop and then restart or 
you know, what's the answer? Yeah. I mean, I, same could be said for getting square cuts or anything else. Yeah. That, that videotaping yourself is probably uh, the best tip out of this whole episode of podcasting, because that, that is something that I do now just because I have a YouTube channel, but uh, there are things that I've noticed about what I do in the shop that I'm like, what the, what the hell? Like back to spray finishing again, a gravity feed cup doesn't come. It's not uh parallel with the tip it tip it's kinked back so that way when you are spraying like a tabletop or something the fluid is still draining towards the the needle so it's not level but i always had trouble with like an uneven spray pattern and i didn't realize this until i was editing a video for youtube that i was making the cup level to my piece not the tip just like just being just dumb, not even thinking about it. Like I'm going to hold the gun level. Yeah. Cause then I'm leveling the cup, not the tip. And I would have never noticed that had I not, not videotaped myself. Yeah. I think that's, that's a common thing now that you see. And you know, I don't care what you're, you're doing. If you're trying to achieve high performance in anything, race car drivers, golfers, uh, skiers, runners, they're constantly looking at video recordings of themselves and analyzing it. Where's your body center line? Is it ahead of, you know, if, if you're golfing, is it ahead of you striking a ball? Is it behind or is it right in the middle where your center of gravity is over the ball and you're going to strike it and it's going to go straight every time? Uh, as makers, we can make ourselves high performance makers as well. And uh, I do the same thing, Brian. I, I record a lot of the things that I build in my garage. I don't always edit them and put them out as, as videos, sometimes because the content just isn't any good. <laughs> and, and that happens a lot for me. And, and it's uh, maybe inattention or other things uh, where either I don't capture something in the way that the story needs to be told or the footage just doesn't work. But I still watch those things back and I look at how am I moving around the shop? How is the material moving from point A to point B? Am I being fastidious about how my process, you know, is there, am I touching the same thing 10 times or am I touching it once or twice? And a lot of the stuff that I do in my shop now is production type work because I do have, you know, a guitar tool company. We are selling uh, other things where I have to do high volumes of things, thousands of parts sometimes. And I will video record. Uh, I have a security camera in my garage and I can go back on that security camera and watch it in, in time-lapse and see the pattern of how I'm moving things around the shop. And that will tell me, you know, you're wasting a ton of time walking from point A to point B a thousand times because that may be how many parts I'm working on. And if I can eliminate one step times a thousand, that that results in, hey, maybe I'll be able to do something fun on the weekend instead of sitting and drilling uh, 5,000 holes, which uh, some of my weekends are like that. But I think we can, again, just being curious about things. I think being creative in our process is just as important as being creative in the things that we make, because uh, again, the the more efficient we can make our processes, the more time we have to either experiment more, create more, or take time away and de-stress a little bit. I think a lot of us makers are under the gun. We have deadlines. We have things that need to be done. You've got a ton of tables that you're doing for one restaurant. You know, if you could hit the fast forward button and get to the end of that, I guarantee you would. <laughs> Absolutely. And, right? There's a lot of stress with that. You know, yeah. they have to be delivered. They have to be, you know, done well. So just looking at your process for working uh, and trying to figure out how can I make my processes better as a, as a maker, as a designer, as a, a builder of things. Okay. So Greg, I think we need to step back a little bit and talk a little bit more about skyscraper guitar tools. Oh. Uh, um, so part of the part of problem solving that, that was kind of what jump-started your, your uh, tool business. Do you have a good example of creativity that uh, are using creative processes to suss out your design changes and build off your designs? Absolutely. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to think of, of one in particular, but you know, it, it's that curiosity that that's driven that entire company. Uh, I'll be the first to say there are other guitar tool companies out there. 
Some of them have been around for damn near a century now at this point. And a lot of them are doing things the same way that they did them when they started 60, 70, 80 years ago. And a lot of the tools look exactly as they have throughout history. And there's nothing wrong with that. They've worked, um, but some of them have been refined. But definitely when when I got into guitar tool making, which is kind of a an odd place to be, right? There's There's not a lot of those out there. Doesn't seem like there would be a lot of things. But I started looking at what what are people doing in the repair world or in the building world of guitars that takes a lot of time, is difficult to do, but could maybe be made faster, easier, more efficient, more accurate if they just had a tool that would help. And that that was where the whole company started, is I was uh, setting up my Floyd Rose equipped guitar, which it's a floating tremolo, there's a knife edge, there's springs, and there's tensions and all kinds of crazy stuff. I've probably talked about it on this podcast before, but it's so difficult to work on those guitars. I mean, you're talking just to change strings might take you an hour and that should be a 10 minute exercise. And so my question was, can we eliminate a portion of that hour? How much of that hour can I eliminate? And that led to, to my trim wedge blocks is the name that we, they go by, but it's just a, a stair step block that allows you to, to take the spring action out of the equation and make everything a rigid system, then you can do your entire setup, remove it, and then add the spring tension into balance. And you're balancing against something that was set up in a rigid situation. So it's very simple. And it, you know, it took an hour long process down to, it takes me maybe 10 minutes to change a set of strings on one of those guitars now. Well, the average person in their basement, home gamer, guitar player, it's not going to be a big deal. Like if they take an hour to change a set of strings, it's no big deal. But there are guys out on tour that are working for guitar players that might have 10 guitars that have these Floyd Rose bridges on them. And most guitar techs change strings every other day on instruments that are played in live shows. So five of these guitars every day that these guys have to work on. And you're looking at, you know, that might take five hours if you don't have the right tool to make that go. Well, that's an insane amount of time to spend every single day servicing these guitars. But um, for sure, looking at an instrument building very critically, like what are the really, really difficult things in instrument building to get right? And when I say that, this is the chisel skill that takes five years to develop to get perfect, right? That That's the question. Like, what? where does that happen in guitar building and how can I start to not necessarily eliminate the need for that skill, but reduce it significantly? I think guitar building, as with furniture building and other things, you have to possess a high level of skill to execute things that are complex and difficult. Once you've done that, you open the door for, okay, if I make this section of that skill not necessary, or you don't have to apply it to this part, then I can use my highly developed set of skills over here and make an even more interesting instrument. So it's giving you back time to make something that is you know, more interesting or more intricate. I don't know. And, you know, some people will tell you, well, you know, these things are, are overly done, right? There's too much here, the gilded lily, so to speak. But I think there's, there's also a search as a designer to be able to make anything that's in your head. Well, if it takes you 7,000 hours to do something that's in your head, you're never going to get there. And again, looking at skyscraper guitars and some of the tools we make, and some of the tools we have in development that I can't talk about yet, <laughs> they are they are to do exactly that. Eliminate some of those very difficult, uh, very precision type things that take a long time to develop so that guitar makers can stop spending their time there and start spending their time on other things that would add value to their instruments, either because of the way they look or the way they perform. Form. Yeah. So I uh, take a little, little tangent. Uh, when you said uh, the hobbyist guitar player, the guy at his basement may not be interested in your product. I think they would very much be interested in your product. Uh, just as an example, by saxophone, uh, when it's in the case, uh, it won't ever get played because I think, oh, I want to play it, but oh, I got to take it out of the case. I got to put three pieces together. 
before I can play it. But that's like a, a barrier to entry for my brain for some reason. But if it's just sitting there and all I got to do is pick it up, mm -hmm. then then I'm I'm rocking and rolling. So the the guy that just wants to quickly change out his guitar string so he can get back to jamming in his basement, I think would totally be interested in that because that's removing a barrier to new strings, to moving a barrier to playing playing the instrument. Well, and I'll share, Brian, I, I don't talk about this a whole lot because it always it always feels like uh, a little altruistic. I don't, I don't know if that's the right word to use there, but philosophically, the reason that I make tools for people who repair and, and build guitars and people who play guitars too, not, not just, not just luthiers, but, but players as well is I think it's much more important for people to make music than it is to spend time working on instruments and anything I can do. I, I think the world benefits greatly from creative endeavors, whether that's art that's hanging on the wall, whether that's music that you hear, whether it's performances that you go and see, there's a reason those things have stood the test of time. And it's because they're important for us as human beings to experience, to, to push our limits of what we understand the human body can do, but to, to also push our senses in a way, whether that's feeling emotions through hearing music or other things of that nature. And a lot of people walk away from playing instruments because of the barrier to entry in terms of difficult, you know, technical difficulty. You have to understand how to, what music is, what the notes are, how, what rhythm is, you know, there's, there's a lot of those things, but the physical barriers as well. If you're a saxophone player, it's finger dexterity. If you're a piano player, it's, it's dexterity, but sometimes it's strength too. If you're if you're really trying to lay into a piano that's hard to play, it fights you. Guitars are much the same way. Uh, you'll see a lot of people quit playing guitar because of the finger pain that they go through. And that finger pain isn't because guitars cause pain. It's because poorly set up guitars, poorly built guitars make it very painful to play. I get a lot of instruments. I work on a lot of instruments for people and they bring them in here. And I'm like, I don't understand how you could even play this. Like this is so painful to play. And a lot of people give up that their pursuit of music because the instruments are hard to play. And I think the world is probably lost out on a lot of creative musicians that gave up their pursuit because of that. So that's why I do what I do at Skyscraper Guitars. There, yes, there's there's the itch that I have to scratch as a designer, but the reason I apply that to guitars uh, specifically is because I think the world could benefit from more guitar players, more musicians, more creative people. Yeah. More, more joy. How much joy of the world has been lost because of a bad playing guitar. So I know that I could be in a terrible mood, stupid, frustrated, just like, you know how, like, I don't, I, well, I don't know if you get like this, but my brain, like sometimes I get so frustrated and I'm angry and I can't break myself out of it. Like it's just the whole day is just a loss to me, but I can sit down and play for a little while and all that just goes away. And then I'm ready to go back to work. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes we've got to live in the moment and our brains don't want us to do that. <laughs> yeah. And in music, you know, it's that old saying, right? Mu music soothes even the most savage of beasts. And, and it does. I, I think, I think music talks to, th there's a reason, uh, you know, we're not the only species that's musical, right? You hear birds, you hear whales, you hear, you know, there's there's a number of different animals on the planet that are very musical and some that you you wouldn't expect. Um, there, there's a reason for it. And it's it's almost like our our own little reset button, a reboot. You know, you you put on some some good music and I don't care if it's, uh, you know, heavy metal, if that's your thing, or if it's classical or opera or, you know, jazz or pop or hip hop or, or whatever it is there that stuff speaks to us and, and it is it's very important i know we're we're way off topic but uh even even at that i think something a challenge that i would give a lot of people is to pick a different kind of music and just put on um you know itunes or or spotify or something on a channel that you wouldn't normally listen to and you may hate 80 percent or 90 percent or 95 percent of what you hear but Every once in a while, you hear that one little tune. And it's like, wait a minute, that one, that one's good. I got something out of that. And it might be a lyric. It might be uh, the way the song was arranged or something, the, the drum beat, something behind it. And, you know, you look at exactly what we're talking about. 
uh, a lot of hip hop music samples music from other genres, other times, and puts it puts a new spin on it. And that's exactly what it is. You know, those guys would never make the music that they're making if they weren't curious about other types of music and bringing that curiosity into their genre and applying it to to hip hop. Yeah, and then also just to piggyback off the the music uh also dance like how it makes you feel like there is i'm sure if you've been on instagram lately you've heard the song um the, of the girl that's singing that she's from outer space she has evolution in her in her veins that song it's like uh, everybody's everybody's uh using that on their tracks now but if you go back and you find the original and watch her dance it's just it's like a, a whole different experience it's a whole amazing thing watching watching her dance as she sings her song yeah again it's it's artistic in interpretation, right? There's yeah. an emotion there. There's a there's a message there. There's something that person wants to convey, uh, whether that's through movement, whether it's it's through lyrics or, or music. You know, lyrics you could call poetry. Uh, and again, I know that that kind of puts on the rose-colored glasses, right? When we when we get into right. this stuff, hey, we're supposed to be tough guys who weld and you know bang things around and pull splinters out of our fingers with. <laughs> but but I think. Uh, you know, even even the art of of woodwork. I mean, just holy cow! You know, uh, sometimes you can sit in your your shop in complete silence, and the only thing you hear is the uh, the shush of the tool against the wood, cutting ribbons or whatever that you're doing, and uh, the catharsis that we that we gain from doing that. I think is is a pretty awesome thing. Yeah, and then you're instantly snapped back to reality when the air compressor starts up and startles you. <laughs> <laughs> isn't that the worst yeah. uh yeah where somebody slams the door what the hell are you doing uh well yeah. brian i'm looking at the time we've been on here i think a little bit over an hour today i think this is a, a great exploration uh this is a really fun topic to talk about hopefully the folks out there listening got a little bit of value out of what we were talking about today yeah well yeah. cool uh thanks everybody for joining us i am greg porter you can find my social media at greg's garage kc and skyscraper guitars and i'm brian benham and you can find links to all my socials at brianbenham.com and you are listening to the maker's quest podcast if you want to check out uh, past episodes check out the makersquest.com thanks for listening